Hello. Okay. Here we go. Benjamin, now I can hear um, What's up? you, but not me. Okay. In my headphones. You can hear just what I wanted. You do. You, are you one of the people with the internal voice or do you lack that? <laughs> um, I definitely don't have like the internal voice that tells me to shut up. Unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's why I'm, you're doing podcasts. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really a horrific time for any um, media production. You know, like it sounds good. Like we're just going to give TV to the people to make. And it's like, oh, yeah, but then we're really just giving TV to the people to make. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a free-for-all. When, yep. when did you guys mm-hmm. start with your uh, the new polity? Or just you uh, specifically in uh, making this content? Um, well, new polity about two years ago. Um, but I've been... It sort of stemmed off of a bunch of um, writing that I've been doing Um, just personally. I used to have a blog called Bad Catholic back in the early internet days. Uh, It wasn't really early internet days. It just felt that way for me. (laughs) Um, And in thinking through some philosophical um, points on... um, liberalism and Catholicism and the relative enmity between the two ended up forming a think tank that we're calling new polity that, um, has a bunch of people involved in the same kind of thought. Um, I believe it was from Augustus, St. Augustus. Uh, there's this story, it might be apocryphal, but my teacher, my poet teacher told me about, um, Augustus's elder or his teacher, all the students of this man were surprised that when he was reading, his lips wouldn't even move. Uh, like, he, mm. um, and I just, I bring that up because, well, one, he's Catholic. I don't know if he considered himself Catholic, but you guys kind of appropriated him to your purposes. Um, but what is the need to go from just writing to speaking? What, what's the transition mm-hmm. from uh, text to orality for you? Yeah. Well, it's more like, for me anyways, writing seems to enable speaking because writing is a stumbling ordeal where I think through an idea and can actually see it as a mistake on paper and then rub it out and try again and try again and then ultimately produce something that seems like a coherent idea or syllogism. And so if it really is true having gone through that process, then I can speak about it. Not with the same eloquence as I have in the essay, but with the kind of confidence that I'm pretty sure there's an essay behind me opening my mouth right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think this is in some ways it's a, it's a lack, right? Like, cause you hear about the kind of ancient rhetorical cultures um, like you're, what you're describing where there is actual training in how to remember arguments, not by writing them out beforehand and looking at them, but by building, you know, we have the concept of the mind palace, but that actually comes from ancient rhetorical strategies for remembering entire speeches where parts of your speech are in this different visual space and you're kind of walking through it in your head so that you can remember the whole speech and give a really confident oration. Uh, so I do think it's a relative lack on my part that I don't, I, I don't have that ability to go from thought to speech. Writing kind of is the uh, crutch in between the mm-hmm. two. I don't know if you experience this at all. You seem to be good at just going right for the for the word. Well, I spent about 20 years just fumbling around on 
in Microsoft Word, just writing and writing and writing and rewriting and rewriting and, and learning that writing's actually rewriting. Uh, you know, you, we, uh, you know, that whole show don't tell thing doesn't really work because writing is all about revisioning, right, and retelling mm-hmm. the story. And uh, then when this whole fiasco internet YouTube thing landed in my lap, I just kind of went with it, and I felt a lot, a lot more. Um, <clears throat> a lot more real and immediate. And then my relationship yeah. to my ideas and to the audience was given a lot more uh, lividity and uh, tactility that I was missing. Yeah. And I was really lonely as a writer. Whereas now I'm like, Oh, I, I have an audience. Now I want to hide more now. Like a, I'm running sure. away from the audience rather than pining for an audience in my little. Sure. Corner. Yeah. What about you? Have, have Going from a blog to speaking, you have a lot of dialogues, and then you also have an audience responding to it. Has that changed, like, your relationship to your ideas in a way? Did it become more embodied or more grounded or less grounded in this format? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a battle against pride and sin in the sense that um, you know, 95% of my motivation is to be admired. Right. And I feel like that's probably most people, if we were honest with ourselves, maybe not, but when you write, then you are in this process of shooting yourself in the foot because you write to be admired, but inevitably if someone reads what you write, they'll no longer admire you, at least not the extent that you would like to be admired because they'll either uh, think you're wrong, think you're stupid, or if they agree with you, they might agree with you for the wrong reasons or for stupid reasons. So then actually writing, it seems to me is only in like thought, does it lead to this sort of glorious, um, reward of attention? It's actually kind of agonizing. And if you don't go through that purgatory of, um, realizing that you, you are not very intelligent and that what you do what you are able to express as a gift and not something like a skill that you have on your own steam, then I think it can be really brutal, you know, and you end up looking at what makes people react well. And then you just start writing that instead of writing anything particularly true. Hmm. This, this seems to be a problem with um, the internet generally is that it gives writers and thinkers and, you know, producers, um, instant feedback the kind of dopamine hit of uh likes and comments um which can very much motivate them to pursue those kinds of results rather than something true or something good yeah i consider it um that's a big uh worry in my corner of the internet when we gain attention trying to be heterodox or trying to critique the woke or whatever it is and then we get kind of a following and if yep. you get too much of a following too quick or you're not really careful about it, it can descend into what I call a fanarchy where you're just basically <laughs> they're, they're speaking through you rather than you speaking to them. Totally, man. Yeah. Dude, you see it a lot. I don't know. In, in my sphere, it's like the Catholic world where it's like you take a, a good Catholic boy. He just wants to tell you about the Bible, tell you about Jesus. He starts writing about it. And he says something a little bit controversial, you know, and he gets a lot of attention. And he's just on this spiral and it starts getting like more and more controversial because you can see it happening. Hmm. And all of a sudden he's saying things he would never agree with, you know, 
couple of years ago. He's just, um, just an addict. And so there's been many, many good men lost by that. Um, what would you call it? Fanarchy. That's great. Yeah. The, it's fantastic. Your tradition has been around for several years now. That's the claim. So I'm sure it's gone through. It's always going through that. There's always young thinkers totally. going up and coming down, you know, rising and falling. Yeah. And this. The church is um, a constant business of reform. So what the church, what the church is, how it conceives itself is humanity reforming itself. And so it's always involves, it never has a perfected humanity within it. It's always just, okay, here's the people at some state, at some stage in becoming good, mm -hmm. becoming perfect, um, which is a hopeful thing, but it's also an embarrassing thing because what it means is that you're members of a body that's often very lame. <laughs> yeah, and sloppy and just like a totally. human body. All these excretions totally, yeah. and twitches going yeah. on all the time. Yeah, coming out everywhere. <laughs> there's the concept of heresy. I don't know to what extent at this time that's a relevant or useful concept. Uh, and then there's apostasy, which I always forget mm -hmm. what it means exactly. So there are bounds to Catholicism. There's a way yeah, for absolutely. a Catholic person to say too many things to appease the crowd that they're no longer in that body. Yes. And one assumes that that line is always being reformed or contested itself a little bit yeah i mean I, I think within the church um you know chesterton had this line where he said um that you never see children play so happily as when they're surrounded by a fence and what he meant is like there's something about the security of a boundary that allows for real creative thinking and flourishing and i do i find this true both like artistically um you know the worst possible prompt is hey man talk about whatever you want it's like, uh, <laughs> your gender can be infinite. Like, Go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think our world generally tends to uh, pretend to offer infinite possibilities. And then we all wonder why we're so paralyzed as to our actual activities. Um, hmm. but yeah, you know, so the, the doctrines of the church provide this fence in which we can creatively think, but you know, at the end of the day, the claim of the church is that God has revealed himself definitively. Um, God became man a particular man, a particular time, a particular place that said particular things. And the concrete reality, reality of that fact provides us with the fence. It's like, look, we can say a lot of things, but at the end of the day, we can't say that God revealed himself in some other way, that the church is some other thing. Um, hmm. And so it's a restriction. And I find that, so I think there's creativity within that restriction. Um, but yeah, there's heresy too, right? So heresy is simply... Um, when we start pretending like we've received some other revelation. Um, so, I've been going through, I, I'm amazed by your content. I just have to completely plug it. I think a lot more people need oh, to thanks. be watching it. It's excellent stuff. Because somebody recommended it to me because of the gender series that you did. And oh, I, okay. I went through that. And then I was pre prepping for our talk today. And I found a whole other series that you did on tyranny. I'm like, oh, no. And like, there's so much <laughs> stuff there. Like, there's so much to, uh, to dive into and to think about. And what I'm personally concerned with right now is the failures of liberalism. And yeah. 
so it's one thing to, well, and I started by critiquing this thing called wokeness, which is just a hyperactive liberalism or progressivism strain of it, and seeing the end result uh, very materially on a number of different vectors. And gender is one of those things. And, uh, you know, wokeness mm -hmm. broadly is another. But when you trace it back, you're like, well, at some point, this descends from liberalism. So at some point, liberalism went wrong. So is that the fault of liberalism? I need to start critiquing liberalism. And then once you start critiquing liberalism, you can't just do it in a vacuum. You have to hold it up to other things. Sure. So yeah. what, what are the alternatives? And there's a lot of alternatives, and some of them are pretty uh, out of bounds for me. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you could always be a Nazi. I was just going to say that. Liberal. I was I was looking at <laughs> right wing Twitter because it's really strange and stuff. And invariably, it's three step. Any given right wing commenter is three steps from a Nazi. It's so weird. It's like okay, so this whole yeah. alt right adjacency thing is really weird. But there's got to be something else. So, looking at your work and trying to understand the fundamentals of uh, fundamentals of Catholicism and how it stacks up or um, not competes with but challenges liberalism, seems like a a uh, healthy and balanced way to go about the project of imagining new possibilities or trying to yeah see yeah where i mean headed. sure i mean historically speaking it seems like that's the right track because um you know liberalism is a product of christian nations right it's a product of um yeah so so it is a um particular christian thing that is done. I mean, I don't think it's a good Christian thing that was done, but it certainly was not a Muslim thing that was done. It was not a, uh, you know, a thing the Roman empire did. It was a thing that baptized people coming out of the middle ages into the modern era did. And so I think if there's going to be any imagination for, okay, if we knock liberalism off its pedestal, and maybe we'll talk about various ways that it can be so knocked. <laughs> um, you are either left with what came before or you're kind of left um, floating around in all you really have is a negation. It's like, I know liberalism is bad. I'm, I don't like it, but what is the good that we should all pursue? What is the shape of our social order? I mean, how should we relate to each other within, you know, social bodies? Like what's the, what are we all doing here, boys? Mm -hmm. Those questions seem to be, um, they're very obviously answered in the Catholic church, you know, to speak personally, I, you know, that's, that's what the church offers in some ways. Um, but so anyways, that's just to really affirm, I think your, your investigation there, it seems like that just historically makes sense. If it came from uh, a, a Christianity and free fall, then presumably hmm the answers to what's after liberalism have to be investigations of what came before liberalism. Christianity and freefall that evokes the very seminal, uh, on the cusp of modernism text, uh, of John Milton's, uh, paradise lost and mm. the fall of Satan right? and, uh, mm -hmm. Satan's love affair with falling. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, so what do you mean by Christianity and freefall? Well, I spoke of the church as a reform of humanity. And I think that's true. I think the church is the social body in which 
people are given the ability to become good. You know, the church says that it's preaching the good news, but the good news always starts with the bad news. And the bad news is that we're fallen, um, that we have rejected a sort of primordial peace, primordial wisdom that we can tell in ourselves like, Oh yeah, of course I meant for peace. I meant for wisdom. I meant for strength in some way. Like there's all of these, but that we don't have it. Um, we don't have these things. We've been horribly cut off from their source. And so the church claims, well, the source of your discontent is the fact that you are made for wisdom, for peace, for strength, for glory. And that these things come from an original relationship with God that's been ruptured because of our own disobedience and our own continued disobedience and our, um, yeah, just our kind of love affair with ourselves, <laughs> which goes on in every life. And then in human history as well. Okay. But that there is a reform that's possible. It's not hopeless. Um, it's very hopeful, full of hope because we're never so far gone as to not be in pain over the loss of these things. Right. The very fact that we, know the very fact that we are disappointed with life shows that there is a greater life that we are somehow still attached to and the church when i say it's the reform of humanity i just mean that it is the work of making people good again it's the work of returning us to a to an original state of peace um that we lost and it does this to the degree that we, that we allow it to. Um, now I feel like I'm pontificating, which I am, but you're going to have to bring me back home to well, the point. It, it, there's plenty of points. So um, the one thing that sticks out to me as a uh, American and uh, a liberal is that obedience thing. And I grew up, uh, mm-hmm. my dad's a pastor, so I, I have... Uh, ties to the church and uh, Protestant denomination, mm-hmm. evangelical and charismatic way back at the beginning. Um, really powerful stuff that went off the rails in its own way. And uh, my sure. father's journey has been to try to uh, reform his relationship with the church by uh, practicing uh, Christ-like behavior as a pastor. And uh, that disobedience or – so what the church offers is, is obedience and – well, peace – and the condition of peace is obedience. And what liberalism offers is freedom. And mm-hmm. the uh, actualization of freedom is rebellion. Mm-hmm. You, you, uh, you know, and that's completely seen, at least since the 60s, if not before then, but very graphically in the 60s, where youth was branded as rebelliousness. Right, and yeah. uh, we, don't, we don't just expect our teens to rebel. We encourage that. And we think there's something totally. wrong with them almost if they're not rebelling. And then, but that eventually gives over to uh, disconnection from peace. Uh, it, it's giving themselves over to the glorification of themselves. And then an utter conformity that we're at this stage right now where the kids right, right now, they're so queer and conformist at the same time. It's like a fever pitch totally. of conformity and queerness, whatever, or differentness. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be obedient to something. And now they're going around and browbeating everybody else to obey yeah. them. Uh, so we, we can't escape that obedience. Um, right. And yet what you are saying that the church is offering is peace at the end of this obedience. 
So yeah, sure. a reforming of a rebellious nature, or there's something in liberalism that, that, that excites something yeah. that we need to fight against? Yeah, no, you, you really nailed it. The idea of making rebellion the norm has all of these paradoxes with it, right? Because when you achieve it, you've lost it. And so we are in a suicidal nation because we preach to everyone to become um, the ideal rebel, the individual who thinks for himself and, and sort of has his own way and his own path. And of course, to attain this ideal is to then have conformed to it as an ideal. And so to no longer be the individual, to no longer be the rebel. So it's an impossible task that we nevertheless give our children, not because we're just sadistic, um, but because it is the uh, religion of the nation. It is the um, piety of the nation is to go through this sort of ritual of giving children an impossible task and then watching them ram their heads into it until they um, usually end up fizzling out and, and just working a job and making money and then dying. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be, I think you're right in your assessment. And I think that there is a way in which, you know, there's a historical component to that in that America especially was founded in a revolution. And so I think there's some ways are that, that our imagination is constrained. Like we're trying to live within ourselves, the American revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about the idea of gender nonconformity, you know, at its heart, there, there's really nothing more Republican American nothing more patriotic than gender nonconformity because it takes the very structure of like, okay, the gender thing is the bad English king that tells you what to do. The nonconformity thing is you saying no taxation without representation, man, and casting them off. So you, you, you shuffle off that authority. So you're saying like non-binary is basically the Boston Tea Party performed on TikTok? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a reified psychological act by which we become American properly. I mean, you think about if, if you have a social ideal, if you have a national ideal, to the degree that you erode the family as the source of the affirmation of the person as good, which is undoubtedly what we have done. The family has been massively eroded. We tend to turn to the ideal ideals of the milieu of the nation of the larger bodies. I mean, this is just natural, right? A failure at a lower level of intimacy. You look for a remedy from a higher level, you know, um, a higher level within the social order. And so if you're, um, you know, whether it's through divorce or through neglect or through abuse or through just, you know, the lack of a solid family structure in which people's identity is given and affirmed by others that they are intimate and know, well, if you're going to take that away, then it's not just a neutral act. You then turn to other places to get that identity, that affirmation, that confirmation that you're something good in this world. And what we have for Americans, once you erode the family, is basically movies. You basically have like a national myth given through many, many different movies and cultural tropes that you then try to approximate as much as you can. And what that national myth is, is that of the righteous rebel, of the, of the justified revolutionary. So we don't know what it is to be good per se, but we know that we're supposed to be throwing off something that's bad, right? We're supposed to 
attain our um, mm-hmm. the affirmation of ourselves through a certain negation of an authority that we reject. And so the problem is, is that once everybody rejects all the authorities, then there's not a lot of legitimate authorities left. I mean, maybe I'm speaking too theoretically. I mean, if you want to be a rebel right now, you've got to kind of look around and figure out, okay, who do I rebel against? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Rebel against the church? That's like kicking a baby at this point. Like the church is not telling you what to do. Most people are like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that you Catholics had a moral code. I haven't heard of a moral code. What is that? You know what I mean? It's like, okay, so the church isn't telling you what to do. The government, I mean, the government's on your side, man. The government's not, well, the government's just affirming us in our own pursuit of our own self-interest at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, what corporations are they, the big bad guy telling us what to do? I thought they were all woke now. So, okay, who do we rebel against? And it's a crisis for a people who whose national ideal is the righteous rebel. And so the body, I do think this, I think the body steps in as a kind of salvific principle. It's like, oh, I have within me this given of the body, this prior um, reality that I didn't choose, that's sort of forced upon me in some way. I can describe it as being forced upon me. Mm-hmm. Um, that does all sorts of things I don't like. That makes me feel all these things I don't want to feel. And so all of those may be totally legitimate, but what the specific American sort of psychological fever thing does is it says, aha, thank God I have found my King George and it's me. It's my body. I found my, I found my England. And so I can declare a revolution. And then, you know, it doesn't, doesn't work out so cleanly as that, but I think that is some of the initial thrill of um, I, I used gender nonconformity as a sort of general, general identity, but of all the various queer um, identities, I think that maybe they realize that maybe they don't, but it's just as American as apple pie. Why does that, uh, why do you think that that's so infectious, why it's traveled around uh, all over the Anglosphere, if it's so American? Well, I mean, I don't mean to knock... Um, I don't mean to knock Europe, (laughs) uh, but they've been Americanized. I mean, actually, I don't even think that that'd be controversial. Most English people bemoan it all the time. You know, I was in Oxford for a little bit and, you know, I walked past the KFC every, every morning on my way to the library and it's, so that there is, I mean, we've bragged about this for a while, right? That America is you know, how do we know we're the superpower while we're exporting our culture all over the globe? So I don't think we should be surprised that when we export it, we also get, you know, we, we really do export it. You know, it's not, it's not even an argument. It's just a description of what, Hmm. what we've already agreed to. Um, But I also think because America is not, as unique in some ways um it's just a sort of intensified version of what uh western nations have gone through namely a fall from a christian social order and the attempt to have instead um christianity as a kind of option um a private option within a real social order which is in fact liberal and this is america does this in a really aggressive way because it's actually how we were founded right so we don't 
we're not like France. We don't go from in one place, this history of um, Catholicity out of medieval Christendom into, well, I mean, I say France is probably a bad example because of the French revolution, which was, it's pretty drastic. It was merely there's a continuity, so. right? There's right. But there's like an ancient regime and then the new thing in one country, but with America and part of what makes up American identity is that we began with rebellion. I mean, we came to a country to escape an authority, to start new religion for the sake of our own freedom. Everything that was difficult to assert in Europe, because we were always at war with a past that was real and evident in its cathedrals and social institutions was simply blank space in America, except for the pesky native Americans who of course we dealt with. And so when we, I mean, think about, you got to think about America. It's wild, right? We came to this place and we literally made a grid and parceled out squares to everybody. I mean, it, it, it's just an incredible social experiment. But what I, the reason I'm trying to argue that it's really just an intensification is that, you know, this happens throughout the Western world. You know, you can call it different things. You can call it the loss of Christianity. You can call it the rise of industrial capitalism. You can call it liberalism. Um, I think that you'd always be grabbing some one part of the, of the beast, but I think America is just a very intense version of it because it began that way. Yeah. Why Christianity? Why do you think that Christianity gave birth to liberalism or this, uh, yeah, the, the fall from Christianity. Whereas you oh, don't man. really see that. I guess, I don't know. It's, it's hard to see that in other places. Uh, Hinduism was upstaged by Buddhism at some point, right? So mm-hmm. it, it fell out of one structure into another. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, It's a paradoxical claim because I I don't think it's like a positive um, development of Christianity. I think that it is maybe, maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's not to describe it as a Christian heresy in the sense that it is a, in some ways a break with Christianity, but it is also a break with Christianity and not with some other thing. Um, Hmm. And you can see this in small ways. Um, where the achievements of Christianity are kind of reframed as natural achievements. So there's a lot of different ways to look at liberalism. One of one of the ways that's been helpful to me is to see it as basically a negation of the um, historical reality of the Christian church and its replacement with the idea of a purely natural development of humanity. That is to say, it's a denial that we ever needed an institution, that we ever really needed, ultimately, the revelation of Christ, but rather that humanity has a certain uh, natural goodness that can be perfected without any divine intervention. So one way to look at this is maybe to think about slavery, right? Because right now, if I ask anyone, is slavery wrong? they're going to unhesitatingly say, yes, absolutely, absolutely wrong. Why would you even ask me the question? You're horrible for doing so. It's very wrong. 
But if I asked anyone in the Roman Empire, including probably the slaves, is slavery wrong? You would not have gotten that answer, right? Slavery was conceived, I mean, even as someone as, you know, dignified and thoughtful as Aristotle would conceive of slavery as a natural institution. It's like, oh, of course, some people are slaves and that's that's proper because um, there's hierarchies within, you know, a universe and, and some people are at this end of the hierarchy and it's more proper to them to be acted through by the will of another rather than their own will, etc. So slavery was not an object of uh, of um, debate, but it became one, right? How did it become one? Now, again, if you ask someone, well, why do you think slavery is so wrong? Like right now, they're going to tell you something like, well, because every person has the right to be free. Maybe they'll say that, or maybe they'll say something like it's wrong to own a person, right? They're going to talk about this unrepeatable, incommunicable value of the human person as if they thought of it yesterday, right? Even, even though the weight of the evidence is that actually that did not occur to people uh, in antiquity. Um, or if it did, it was sort of in this, well, no, I don't, I really don't think it did, but it certainly was only applied to sort of select groups, which is, you know, not saying much. So, okay. So what happened? Are you, are you right? saying Christianity that happened? Not everybody has um, like a divine spark in them, uh, according to sure. the way that the ancients looked at people. There was no yeah. equality under the eyes of God. Let's just say, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, there was every society was sort of um, determined in some way by its exclusion of those who were not it. So, you know, you had Rome and then you had the barbarians, for instance. And this took a long time to even become a question. Like it was the gradual influence of Christianity. I mean, any reasonable historian that says, okay, how did we get from slavery's a okay to slavery's absolutely abhorrent? Any historian that doesn't posit Christianity as the influence that brings you from one to the other is just lying to themselves. I mean, the assertion that everyone is created by God, ex nihilo, for the sake of love, and everyone is deemed worthy of the death of that God in the, in the cross of Christ, like they are saved by God. God then goes out of his way to save them. Um is like a corrosive acid on the institution of slavery. I mean, it takes a long time, obviously, but gradually ownership is considered proper to the dignity of the person. And the person really does become an owner until you get to the point of moving from slavery, almost imperceptibly into a peasantry within Europe in which there's no, even while there's hierarchies between you know, lords and, and peasants, there's no sense that a peasant can be owned like cattle. There, there's a sense of it being proper to them to own their own property. Um, okay, so there's a gradual revolution here that's really affected by Christianity and by its vision of the world. And what liberalism is, is an attempt to erase that history and say, well, we can reasonably um, know that every man is created equal. We can reasonably know without need for revelation, without need for grace, we can come to this sort of conclusion that slavery is abhorrent. 
because uh, you know one of the examples that early liberals like to give is that well i wouldn't want it done to me and so i have to universally apply it to everyone else that then we shouldn't do it to them so it's a sort of like a self-interested and anti-slavery mm-hmm. position um which is again it's ridiculous because it's presuming the christian principle that um you know that it should be the case that everyone is getting the equal uh just because they're all coming from the same God. They're all loved by the same God. They're all part of the same movement of redemption. There's one story of salvation in which everyone is involved as unique individual persons. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the point being just that, you know, liberalism tries to do is have these achievements of Christianity as if they simply come from a, it's like the, it's the making unnecessary of the divine. It's the making unnecessary of the church. Um, and so this is why it's often paired with, um, the Protestant revolution and that as the church becomes, uh, is described as less and less of a real social body that really has a mission that really has a purpose that you can touch, that you can go to and becomes more and more just, a, um, individual private ascent to some beliefs. It loses its efficacy in the world. Um, it becomes, you know, I best a club or like a gem, the turning of the church into the club is, is the movement of liberalism, a place where you go and you work out your soul with a couple other people. And then you go back. Yeah. If they want to, and if they don't want to, then, um, that's fine too. Yeah. I mean, liberalism is, um, as it describes itself, it's not really doing anything. It's just not saying anything about God so that, people can choose for themselves about God. It's not saying anything about the nature of man so that people can choose for themselves what it means to be man or what it means to be woman, right? It's just an agnostic empire that is allowing the space necessary for individuals to flourish on their own terms. Now, the reason that this is not true is because, well, I mean, they are actively enforcing a regime of agnosticism, right? So what I mean is you're saying something very positive about who God is. If you're saying that you can live agnostically towards him, you're saying something very positive about who man is. If you're saying he's fulfilled within systems in which religion is merely a private choice that he may or may not, not make, right? You're enforcing this, right? So it's like, that's why liberalism can have any religion except for the ones that say, that, you know, we can't actually just tolerate a diversity of religions, right? So liberalism has to, you know, coerce and enforce yeah. its own agnosticism. The, the, and, the logical outcome yeah. is repressive tolerance. Kind of yeah, stuff. totally. Like, we, yeah, uh, we tolerate because de facto, the only things that are real religions are the ones that don't matter. So within, within liberalism, a religion is just defined as a privately held belief system. Any religion that says, no, 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 um, the church is a social body with laws that it should be able to enforce. Okay, that, now you're like a religious fascist or something, right? And it has to be that way within liberalism because it there can only be one boss. There can only be one game in town. And for us, it's our it's liberal states. And so you can't have any competitors to that. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. they're the sovereign. They enforce the law. 
So religion must simply be an irrelevant choice within those regimes. If it ever says, yeah, no, we're going to have a Catholic society that makes its own law, that makes its own, like that, if it, if there's ever a religion that would say confidently, oh, we have everything we need for human life, quite apart from what you offer and can, and can create peace and have our own coercion and all this. I mean, that would be your terrorist organization, your cult at that point. Or the Amish. Or you're the Amish, the special case. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't they wild? Isn't it wild that they get away with being who they are? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. They have a lot of land too. They're just minding their own business. Totally. They're going to take us over, man. <laughs> well, they, they uh, rebelled against the Democrats, I heard. Um, isn't it possible, yeah. though, that this liberal state, if it restrained itself only to matters of jurisprudence and maybe some economy and doesn't edge into the moral territory, yeah. if, if it keeps itself a-religious um, and if it had an antibody in it that it didn't become religious, is what we're saying now, the problem with liberalism right now is that it's it's become religion it's extremely extremely religion and there's no way to stop that because there's this huge void there but if it could have been the case for a while that it was neutral and impartial it did give us a tremendous amount of growth artistically culturally people Mm -hmm. making things up innovations unlocked and there's a lot sure there's a, a lot of people get lost in that but a lot is found as well a lot is created. A lot of untapped potential is created when you have different people with different viewpoints and some sort of neutral marketplace where these viewpoints can come together, clash, and create new things. Yeah. And yeah, the absolutely. Catholic Church can do that to a certain extent. I mean, you guys have your cultures and it's developing, but not to the extent that liberalism has given us. Well, I mean... I don't know that I would agree, although I, I do sympathize with what you're saying, because we have this difficulty when we think about the church today, which is that we're always kind of thinking about the church within liberalism, when the claim about uh, the post-liberal claim is something like this, the church prior to liberalism wasn't the church, it was the society, right? So we look back and we say like, you know, we look for the church in the middle ages, but, um, it kind of all was the church. Right. So, and I think that to some extent that just is what it would mean to live in a society generally pursuing like a common good, a good in common, you're all doing it together. So for instance, within the church, we we make a distinction between, you know, or, or rather within our nations, we make a distinction between like what's secular and what's religious. Right. And religious is the negation of what's secular and secular is the negation of what's religious, right? But within Christendom, secular just meant a certain kind of priest. It actually still does. It's like a secular priest as opposed to a religious priest who's in a monastery, right? And the religious simply meant something that Christian people did to devote their lives to contemplation. So being religious meant you were a monk. Being religious meant you were a nun transforming that into a dichotomy of religious and secular is a really great example of what liberalism has invented, Hmm. namely a sphere in which religion just no longer applies. Whereas the presumption of Christendom of societies prior to liberalism of where we're saying liberalism ultimately broke from is that there is no secular. 
And there is, and it's paradoxical because then there is no religious either, um, because they're they're the presumption is that we are one society. This society is called the church. This church is humanity in reform and it involves everything, your economies, your politics. You know, we can't understand the world we left. Like we look, we, we're looking for the state. We're looking for the church. We're looking for the secular. We're looking for the religious. We're looking for this binary. And so we turn to history and we just cannot make sense of it. We're like, okay, here's a king who is being prayed over by the church, the Pope say to become the King and his rule, he says is something divine and holy and in the image of say, uh, David from the old Testament. So is he a secular ruler? Well, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand you want to say, yeah, because he's not the church strictly. He's not a Pope or a priest. He's doing something with armies and he's doing something with land. And that seems kind of secular, but on the other hand, he's clearly not secular. If by that, you mean not religious, like his, his secular role is religious. So the categories are totally blurred. Liberalism is the intellectual effort and ultimately the successful intellectual effort to imagine a place where religion doesn't matter to imagine politics as somehow apart from religion. And so something that a state can control without reference to the teachings of the church to imagine economics as something that de facto has nothing to do with religion and therefore can be controlled by billionaires with who are not constrained by any particular code of morality. Um, and so it makes, so it makes the conversation a little difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're, we, this, this is always the case, right? We have our categories. The whole world seems very, makes sense to us, you know, and just the presumption is that the way it is, is the way it's always been. But part of what made me question the state that we have now, question liberalism as we have now, is precisely its inability to make sense of what we had then. You know, to say, oh, right, the categories of church and state don't really make sense here. And maybe that goes back to what I said at the beginning. I didn't mean it to be like a structuring comment on our conversation, but if the church understands it as the reform of humanity, it, it's not relegated to some number of spheres um, where we can say, oh yeah, the church has to do with this and that. It's all of us. It's everything. Um, but yeah. in a world that's so tied, uh, into itself with the uh, advent of technology and uh, communication and rapid traveling so far as they'll allow us to travel uh, going forward. <laughs> uh, the proximity between these different groups and these different religions has dramatically collapsed. And the liberal order was uniquely qualified to give a place where the Muslim, the Jew and the varieties of Christian can live in somewhat harmony within a city and deal yep. with each other. And, you know, the, the idea of secular is that I can go as a Christian and eat kosher food and be served, yep. you know, the meal at the Jewish deli, uh, but they won't come and try to force me to stop eating bacon, right? Like it's this, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of acceptableness of, of difference and that secular yep. 
bond, I, I think it can work within a conception of, uh, you know, a watered down conception of everybody being equal uh, and everybody being divine or not divine. We're just creatures and we're coming together. That sure. allowed that. And that unlocked tremendous amounts of potential in no, America. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and I don't want to knock it because that is what was so wonderful about liberal states. It's just that I think what we're realizing now, as we suddenly, when we feel this kind of creeping up on this, like, why is everyone mad at each other? Why are we so contentious? I thought we could just kind of get along with our differences, but suddenly it's like, man, I can't say anything. It's like, Mm -hmm. we want to say that this is just a phase. Like, okay, we're just going through something weird here. Everyone's kind of cooped up, but give it a year, give it two years. And we're all going to be doing the same thing, laughing at the differences, laughing at the jokes, sitting down at the same place, eating, you know, like you said, kosher food at the deli, but not being okay. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to get worse and worse. Because... And the reason is because I think it's a myth that there is some non-Christian reasonable way of affirming, maintaining, and ascertaining that we are all equal and that there's this fundamental equality that's just woven through all of us. I think this is true. Don't get me wrong. It is true. The Jew, the Muslim, the Christian, we have a fundamental human dignity, right? We have this fundamental human freedom, right? But that is a concept that is derived from a positive Christian revelation. We are all created in the image and likeness of God, right? The idea that we can separate ourselves out from that Christian revelation to no longer affirm that we are created by God, to no longer affirm any intrinsic dignity to the human person because he is a, he is a soul. He is a, well, he is a gift, right. Of God that we can simply, okay, that was some stuff we believe some silly stuff, but we're going to keep what it did. We're going to keep that kind of equality that it gave to the world. And we're not going to start thinking like, that there's definite binary differences between people. We're not going to start coercing someone just because they're a little different. Like we, we can keep that up. I think that was a myth and it was a strong myth because Christianity is a social force. It is not like we live it even when we don't realize it because we've inherited a language and a culture and a people and a way of the world looks the way it does because we are to some extent still Christian. And one of the ways it looks is that it looks like difference is good and beautiful. One of the, um, one of the kind of prototypical Catholic doctrines is that God is infinite. And so he is revealed best in diversity, right? So when you have, when you're trying to express an infinite truth, you need a multiplication of finite truths. You need a multiplication of words, right? When the thing, okay, you get the idea. So, difference, diversity, um, inequality, inequality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all these things are seen, you know, as revelations of the one God that made us all. Um, and the whole creation and its difference is valued as a infinity of reflections that approximate to a infinitely unknowable God. Um, the idea that we can just have that good stuff without its source is foolish. And what we are experiencing now is really what the world is like when Christianity is gone. It's just that we, it's the collapse of our world, our worldview. And so we don't see it as the loss of um, Christian goods. Mm -hmm. We see it as just weird. 
But I really do think that this is probably what pagan empires, generally speaking, are like. That, no, you can't just be different. No, you can't just have someone tolerate you because they have this natural impulse to believe that you're on a road that ultimately leads to your salvation. No, no, no. That is a historical achievement of a religion that you are just driving on the fumes of it, but the gas is gone. Okay, because no one believes it anymore. And the idea that, yeah, we can just keep pushing this pedal down and moving this thing forward is false. In fact, what we are going to have and what we indeed already have is the sense of that person is the demon. That person is an enemy. That person is not properly human. His difference is unacceptable. His difference must be coerced into a homogenous sameness, right? Um, no, we are not on a road to glory, right? We are a, on a road that will either be controlled by man or we are going to fall into disaster, right? These fundamental presumptions are creeping up in the human soul and they don't, yeah, I don't mean to be pessimistic. It's just, I really don't think they go away without real conversion. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking through my investigation into the end of liberalism or, you know, the, the flowering of it into the wokeness and sure. uh, the, the ideas that it's running on are very cynical. Um, it's all about power relationships. You go into Butler at length. And so, you, you know, inside and out the postmodern yeah, yeah. turn. Um, so seeing with, with the lack, are you, okay, how do I phrase this? Are you suggesting that without the lack of a positive um, affirmation of a divine source and what comes with it, goodness, love, beauty, and truth, without that, what we are left with or what the human imagination will create is a dark god, will slip into a Gnostic um, vision of the world as it's all power, and what human beings have to do is the work of thinking through and knowing how to undo all of these power relationships is what we have with what woke actually derives from is this awareness of oppression. And the problem that yeah. I have with that is that all you end up seeing is oppression and you have to keep on creating oppression in order to keep on going because there's no, yeah, totally. nothing else there. So are you suggesting that without cut off from the source that was embedded within the church um, of a relationship, a promise of a relationship with God and with yeah. reality that you know, is a struggle, but has peace at its core. Without that, everything is going to descend into a brawl. And that's what we're seeing now. Because yeah, I mean, all we have is power. I think that's pretty much it. I think that... I think that God makes us unafraid because, like children, when we realize that our father provides for, we don't even have to realize it because he provides for us without us realizing it. Right. So when we live in a situation in which we are provided for and which our identity and our very being is proclaimed good. And we're presuming this as our world, like, Oh, I live in an abundant world, you know, where the creator of the world gives good things to me. Right. Then that belief creates a certain kind of human being that acts in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So he acts under, he presumes abundance. He yeah. presumes that, well, there's going to be enough. 
when there's difficulty or hardship, he presumes that he will be taken care of. And he acts in such a way as um, to convey that to others as well. But well, not, not to go so far of, as go to ahead. take that for granted. Be, to be grateful, but not to take it for granted, yeah. not be a wastrel. Yeah, exactly. I use the child metaphor because it's helpful, but but not in the ignorance of childhood, right? Um, where we really are taken care of, but we're also incredibly selfish and don't understand you it. You still right, have to be until, a steward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it, it is a, you know, when Adam was created uh, in within the scriptures, you, you read that he had everything everything taken care of every tree of the garden he could eat of um but he was also infinite i should say infinite it's totally wrong he was wise right so he he was given wisdom the participation to know god and to know his gift um and that's what we're aiming for that's that's what catholicism tries to do to people to make them a little more like adam um prior to the fall <laughs> that's the hope but um Okay, so you have that one option, and now you can take God away, okay? And what's left is pretty much what you see, um, which is that man appears in the place of God, right? So mm -hmm. you presume that man has to provide that. And man's tools are God, either either man or man's reason or rationality. The, the effects mm -hmm. of man are, are God. Yeah. Salvation is found through them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. You have to, I mean, you think about in scriptures, the people running from God um, have to build. They build a tower. The tower is called Babel. It's in defiance of God. And, and sometimes I think we think of this as just like a, you know, Babel is just this tower that was really impressive. See God, what we can do. We rival even you, but it's also just, I think totally correct that, um, the effort to provide for human life in fear requires great. Uh, let me back up when we're no longer assured of a good God, who creates us and loves us and cares for us. And this isn't the operative um, presumption of human life. We start to presume that man must take care of himself, that we're alone in the cosmos, that it's on us. Things that otherwise are impressive and maybe even alarming become deathly frightening because there's no presumption of a net. There's no presumption of help. There's no presumption of grace. There's no presumption of abundance. So every, every, um, threat to human life becomes infinitely more fearful because it's a threat to our entire, the entirety of our resources, right? We're, we're just on our own out here. Hmm. So people become frightened. And so when people are frightened, they tend to amass, right? They tend to try to look at the world as something that's full of scarce resources that they need to gather as much power as they can for themselves to be able to weather a hostile universe that has no good God um, as its source. And so I'm doing two things here. One is this is just how the early liberals describe the world, right? So when they go to their state of nature myths, and you look at Hobbes especially, they just describe this, right? The universe is full of scarce resources. Man is at war with man. We're all competing. The presumption, they're just literalizing, and liter, liter, literalizing, yeah, um, or mythologizing, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of consequence. They're giving a story 
of the creation that begins not with God and his gift, but with man and his contracts, man and the things he does, you know, to survive. Yeah. And so I think that in answer to your question, I think that what we see when we look at the postmoderns, when they describe everything as being a product of man, right? So everything is just this construction that you make and you're imposing, right? And the most powerful people are the most successful at imposing their construction, right? And so these become norms, quote unquote, but of course they're not norms. They're just power plays, right? On the one hand, we can critique this for a lot of reasons, but I think we should at least affirm that that seems really consistent um, with the liberals and with anyone making the presumption that man is up to his uh, is on his own resources. So where there's no God, of course, it's up to you to simply amass what power you have and construct a world that is most befitting to yourself at the expense of others. And also uh, that feeds into blaming everything on man and then being embroiled in resentment. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you are responsible for everything and the whole universe is laid out to you as scarce resources that you're supposed to get as much as you can of in order to defend your life against a hostile universe, then <laughs> your neighbor is hardly a, hardly happy to see your neighbor show up unless he's in some kind of yeah. contractual slavish relationship with yeah. you yeah. where you can use him. Yeah. I mean... Um, so, so the neighbor becomes a threat. And what's weird about like postmodernism and queer theory is that there's no good guys in postmodernism. And I don't understand where. Are you talking about the postmodernists themselves? I can't think of a really sorry no, example. I'm, th <laughs> I'm thinking about but... like, okay, so you take a, t a typical sort of critique of like, um, you know, someone might say something like, you know, you think that being man and woman is natural, but it's actually ju just this construction of power that through all of this capital and all this wealth and all this historical power um, makes it appear as natural, right? And so the takeaway in, is supposed to be something like, oh, isn't that bad, right? Shouldn't I have X construction instead in which I appear as gender fluid or agendered or transgender or there's just nothing and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we're jumping a step here. Because if it's the case that the wealthy and the powerful make one oppressive construction, right? They're just doing the exact same thing you're doing. They're just doing it better, right? They just have successfully made the construction. Whereas right now we're working on successfully making a different construction. Mm -hmm. There's no truth. There's no authenticity. There's no there's nothing natural here. We're just throwing our constructions at each other as weapons, which is exactly how liberalism describes the world, right? Like there's scarce resources. We're all in competition for them. And we're trying our best to get our own to be on top so that the world can be more ordered to us than it is to the other guy. Okay. So <laughs> I don't know if this makes sense. It's just like, it's something that frustrates me in the attempt to say, because this construction, this cisgender construction is so bad. Therefore, this transgender construction, is, it must be so good. It doesn't follow at all. all. All you have is two constructions with relative power. And if transgenderism sort of was given all of the power and all of the wealth, as we are trying to do in some ways, so that it could assert itself against the other uh, previous construction, you would just be in the same position. Well, with minus some genitals. 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's always sacrifices that have to be made for sure. But it does seem like, you know, it's a dark world. Yeah. Yeah. You said a dark God. And I, I think that, you know, uh, maybe it, maybe it's oversimplified, but I, I just think that it's, hmm. it's man attempting to be God. You know, that, that can be applied to the far right. I don't even know what that term would be, but the, the people who go so far in the direction that we conceive of as right as to become, uh, obsessed with power and obsessed with um, just another form of racial politicking or some other sort of might makes right thing. It's the same thing. It's just, it's refreshing uh, when put up against postmodernism because at least it's kind of clean. At least they work out, you know, at least they have the symbol, at least the the symbols mean something, but it's still, uh, it's still missing that which provides what we had or, what we could have, which would be peace and harmony and innovation. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the no. Germans did do some great uh, innovations during their... Uh, yeah, well. yeah. yeah, you know, it's tough because it seems like there's been this turn within conservative folks where it's like there used to be a lot of admittedly sort of, I think, Christian concern for the truth, Right. Because the idea of something being true means that when someone is, um, I mean, the truth is somewhat coercive, but not really, right? Because uh, only as coercive as like reality itself is coercive. And so when a political effort is always to live in accordance with the truth, and I don't mean cynically here, because this is the problem. Postmodernism is here like, well, there is no truth, blah, blah, blah. But if we were, if there is truth, um, and we can presume that then you can see the road forward to like a definite um, a definite effort of living in peace um, without coercion, except for where there is the attempt to lie about reality. And then it's the coercion of the truth. The truth itself should attract us, should make lies look ridiculous, should have us defend it. Like, no, we should live according to the truth. Um I'm not seeing a lot of that in conservatism right now. It just seems to be more like, well, who cares about the truth? We want to win. Right. So the way we win is just by some um, alternative sort of aggressive identity politics where we just do what the left does because we're resentful that they did it so well up until apparently like maybe five or six years ago, in which now the right seems to be basically better at doing identity mm-hmm. politics and like grievance stuff in order to get things done. Um which which again uh, aligns with your proposition that without God guiding society, even the people who were closer to God five years ago sure. will degenerate into. Yeah, I mean, you see, it's kind of it's kind of disgusting in some ways, right? Like a, a Christian who whose big wins are showing how he's oppressed for being a Christian. Or, you know what I mean? Like, or Christians who now have it as an identity or like, you know, people that are trying to have heterosexual, like I'm a heterosexual male and they assert it as an identity worth protecting in the exact same way that someone is asserting their bi-gender status. Mm. Just, you know what I mean? Like some of this is, you know, it can begin as a joke. Yeah. 
Super strict. But a very wise man once told me, be careful what you joke about. Oh, really? <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Well, I've learned that over time. <laughs> yeah, you see this. Like, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just, I'm, I'm saying what I think. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I see the, um, yeah, I, I think that in the absence of a pursuit of truth, which um, is confirmed by a belief that there is in fact a common narrative in which all of humanity is involved in, in which everyone, no matter what differences, right. We can affirm that they are children of God um, moving towards their future glory. When we can't, when we can no longer affirm that, um, well, I think this is the kind of world that you create is um, differences or rather uh yeah, the utilization of the truth in the war against all against all. But that's yeah, it. Yeah. The, it matters because it works. The problem with revival, reformation, uh, there's a lot of things. But one, what it comes down to me with the religious question is that you can assert this all you want, and it can be a beautiful, wonderful assertion. You can have all your ducks lined up. You could be a you mm-hmm. know, doctorate thesis guy who's actually good at talking about it. And uh, yet if the individual that's listening to you, they might be persuaded and they might be persuaded out of fear of the alternative or because something sounds good to you, but without the revelation personally revealed, without God revealing himself to the soul, it's still a pantomime. It might be a better pantomime, but true change doesn't happen until that happens. And the only thing that one can do, I suppose, is to prepare the way for that to happen because a human being can't reveal God to another human being, which is the problem that I have with uh, fundamentalist religion, uh, uh, people who are religious who assume that they, through assertion and proposition, can save the world. God saves the world, right? Right, right, right. But you, that doesn't mean that you can't make those assertions or that you shouldn't be making the case for God. Yeah. But Benjamin, don't you think, I mean, within the Catholic world, we baptize babies. Okay. So these squalling, you know, cute nothings that, you could never attribute anything like reason or will or even like awareness of basic surroundings outside of like an inch around their bodies. Right. (laughs) And we say, we are in faith going to bring you into a body called the church, into a story of salvation, into a reformation of you and all of us. What I mean to say is something like this. I think it might be a presumption of liberalism that Christianity is somehow extrinsic to a social reality that what we have is some real social reality. We're all chugging along, working jobs, having babies and stuff like that. And then within that reality, we can kind of reach up and grab Christianity or God maybe reaches down in a, in a crucial moment and grabs us. And it's, but the field is essentially secular. The field is essentially not, doesn't have anything to do with God in itself. It's just awaiting, you know, a sort of, and I Hmm. think what I would like to suggest, maybe not with a lot of justification is just the opposite vision, which is that the field is religious. Um, You know, I would suggest things like, well, we only can use reason because we're, we're 
oriented towards um, the divine, towards the truth, which is an infinite reality that we cannot possibly contain, that ultimately we identify with God himself, that human life is unthinkable except for as a searching towards the divine. And so what's really extrinsic, what's really momentary is those moments in which that is blocked, as it were. And we imagine ourselves within some kind of purely secular realm that God may or may not break into. Hmm. And and this is, and I'm not trying to rag on on, um, the Protestants here, but this is in some ways a result of Protestantism where there's a certain shade cast on the whole social nature of salvation. Um, And instead we're given a kind of individual um, account where, you know, the rational assent to Christianity. um, I I don't need to go into the history, but, you know, Martin Luther's sort of concept of faith as the subject grasping, um, God and God grasping the subject in this, in this sort of intense moment of faith. Um, this is very, it's actually very foreign, I think, to the Christian tradition as a whole. And it, and it is the denial that, um, yeah, that Christianity is a social reality from the beginning that it involves the dead and the living, the babies and the adults. So it's the, just like racism. It's, it's just the water we swim in to, yeah sure (laughs) uh it's you know this might be tough or it might seem like it might seem difficult but from from my perspective there there really aren't people unrelated to the church so what i mean is there's degrees of participation within the church but um, as the reform of humanity, it intrinsically involves all of humanity. You might be a heretic, you might be an apostate, you might be a pagan. So there, you can describe these different degrees of relation to the church. Um, but we're all, if what the church says is at all, is at all true, we're ultimately ordered towards one end and that's God. Um, I don't yeah. know the technical term for this, but if if you look at the world without the church, um, if you look at the, the world right now, uh, the post-liberal order that we're teetering on, um, mm-hmm. there is still the same assumption. It's just the dark God. Instead of assuming that everybody's already saved or that we're already enmeshed in this process of revelation and reformation and participation with God, ultimately, that that frame of reference, that totalizing frame of reference is still there. We still make a blanket assumption mm. or mm-hmm. that assumption comes up with a magnificently powerful force. And when you're talking about uh, a world uh, or a society without faith and, and a loving God or without a direction of their attention toward that, what we saw from 2020 just in a nutshell, what you see at Evergreen State College in a very small nutshell, but in 2020, COVID came and death ruled us and fear and neuroticism swept in. And on the heels of that, the people who were saying that we have to absolutely lock down and shut off all human um, interaction and destroy ourselves as a society to save us as bodies, 
those people then argued that we need to go out into the streets to fight this ultimate evil of racism, that everybody that that this this death is secondary to this thing called racism, this totalizing frame of view. So just on a group level, and this is the problem that I have with rationalists and and, um, atheists, is that they can say, I can live without the church. I'm like, well, yeah, you can, but how many people around you can do that too? And if you look at every atheist movement, you guys turn into a church. (laughs) You're you're already going to be seeking that because in order for us to to relate to each other, we're going to have to have that field of being. So that proposition is there. I don't know how loose that can be and still be coherent, but it has to be kind of loose. I can't agree with everything that you say. Sure. I'm not going to surrender sure. all of my experience to, sure, totally. to the church and reframe everything into the language of the Catholic church. But mm-hmm. I still think that, that the assertion that you're making, the assertion that I, I make kind of as a deist, Deist, and I try not to make the assertion because that's not my position on uh, public facing, is that there is going to be that plane. So what is that plane? How do we get, can get to that plane? Ultimately, it's pre-propositional. It's participatory. And what you're saying is that it's also social, social too. And yeah, that's symbolized no. by the baby before it can make the choice, is brought into, is identified as a Christian. And through mm-hmm. that identity, everything else follows. All of their growth, all of their learning, all of their participation yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the myth of liberalism is that it's not totalizing when it's obviously just another total that, frame. That liberalism itself is not totalizing. Right. Which exactly. is why you talk like, about it so much when you talk about tyranny. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, any um, in, in at the end of the day, I think most tyrannies now are just fake churches in the sense of they're not the church and they're pretending to be. Um, I mean, so what I mean to say is I do think that there is a particular total um historical reality that we're all involved in there's a true story of humanity and i think it has been revealed and because of this i think that you're right that we make we are when we're stripped of that story right when that becomes well a story that maybe i can believe but i can just as well not believe within a field that's really reality is really just secular and and you know, I can make choices within that, but but that's secondary. It's a second order. Hmm. Um, it's easy to trick people because it's easy. They're 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 very easily swayed by other totalitarian totalitarian visions, right? Like um, you basically create a people that are looking for the whole world to make sense, and so are very susceptible to someone saying, "Here's how it makes sense. It's race. It's all race." here's how it makes sense. It's money. It's all money. You know, here's how it makes sense. It's, um, power structures, uh, you know, uh, all the way down. And mm-hmm. here's how the whole world makes sense. It's, we're all animals. Um, you know, sort of a evolutionary racism sort of mode. Um, or more likely <laughs> more often, here's how it all makes sense. Uh, liberalism, right. Um, you and because that one's especially fun to use because it's a totalitarian vision that hides itself as fulfilling our need for a totalitarian vision. It says, says, um, well, this is just a vision where everyone is equal and everyone competes within a marketplace of ideas and goods. And it says all these things without acknowledging that this is in fact a totalitarian vision. It explains everything in reality, what, what you might call an ideology. An ideology is, is something that 
explains the whole world for you. And but there's something in there's something lacking in liberalism. And yeah. you would say that that's God, or how would we formulate that? What what are we pointing to when there's disruption after disruption and the failure of all of our institutions, and then they're flailing toward more power, open more and more openly, like yeah. taking stripping people of their bank accounts now, uh, making departments of truth now. Like our our we've sure. watched the authority drain from our liberal institutions, and now we're seeing that lacking that authority that was granted them by doing good works and being nominally Christian. Uh, in the past, is now turning into its opposite. Uh, it's, yeah, it's becoming blatantly uh, tyrannical. Yeah, with 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 you know with a rainbow flag, you know, on the bomb, you know, and yeah, yeah, and, and all this dressing, all this window dressing. Sure, I lost the question somewhere in that. What adventure. what what's missing? What's that one thing that's, oh, that's missing? Right. Or what what's lacking in that? And I guess you say it's God, but yeah, but it's also it's also the good. Um, like, the good beyond just diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, yeah, beyond something that you're really after as a private good. So what I mean is um, the traditional term would be the common good. Um, so traditionally, can you imagine this? Traditionally, it's always taught that we first of all pursue the common good. So the things that are good for all of us and in which we participate. And then within that, we can pursue private goods, the things that are just good for us. And obviously there's a way in which God is the highest common good, right? Because he is the destiny of all of his creatures. He is the you know, alpha and omega, the source, but then also the destination or, um, can you can and, you articulate yeah. that God is destiny in a way that a, a secular uh, person would understand? Um, yeah, I think I could. <laughs> Let me just give me a sec, though. I mean, doesn't it seem like in our liberal societies, we're all um, pursuing our own interests. I mean, I'm just saying that as the most basic, like there doesn't seem to be any transcendent good, which we're all after. Unless you speak about burgeoning um, activism, activism is the one secular thing that has that purpose at heart. Yeah, no, absolutely. But within activism, you express something as a transcendent good, but you express it as only being possible insofar as it is being negated. So you're, you're really fighting oppression. So you're saying I am pursuing equality, but what you really are doing is well, I'm at war with people that take away equality. They seem to hmm. the idea of a common good. That's actually a positive vision. Like what are we all here for? What are we all doing? What makes everybody happy ultimately? Those are the kinds of goods that we pursue together. We can't pursue them otherwise. You know, we pursue them in our families because we we know that we are all involved in their pursuit. And we couldn't I couldn't possibly attain my happiness, my good without a mother and a father. Right? I couldn't exist without a mother and a father. 
So there's a good that isn't just reducible to an individual good. So something that you want because you happen to want it, something I want because you happen to want it. That is, I think, what is missing in liberalism is the articulation of goods that are not just common because a bunch of people happen to want them, but because they fulfill us as human beings. They fulfill our nature. They're proper to us. They belong to us, and we pursue them together. Um, instead, it's sort of a social fever where we determine um, – that there's enough individuals that want something and then we start to demand it as a right. Mm. Um, as opposed to asking, you know, what are we all for? So when I talk about God as, as our destiny, I'm saying that within a society, uh, within a Christian society, um, though there can be sin, there can be failing there. I mean, obviously massive sin, massive failing. The presumption is that, we are all made for the same end, right? Um, we are all made to return to our homeland, our creator. Um, and where that's, yeah. So, so I think that's, I do think in some ways you could just say, I think what's missing from liberalism is God. I think that's, that's fair to say, but I think there's a danger in saying it because you end up with this structural idea of, of God as one other object within an array of possible objects that individual actors see as beneficial to them, right? God is this sort of therapeutic thing that you want to get. And maybe if enough people want to get, you can pretend that it's something that you're all after. And it's just not, it's not what's meant. Hmm. So it, again, liberalism or our world has a very difficult time conceiving of what this other order outside of its own terms we reduce even God to an emoji in your bio or something like that. God, if you want them, yeah. you know, and if you don't want them, that's cool too. And then we pretend, and that, that itself is a, I think an evil, but then we pretend that that's somehow a neutral position that every reasonable man should hold. And that makes no difference to either our conception of God or man. God's just this thing that you can have or not. If you want him. that's who God is. <laughs> it's like, Oh buddy, you're doing theology. You are literally enforcing a theological vision and then claiming not to be enforcing anything. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it's really hard. I, I, I've seen it articulated in your work over and over again. So most people that will fly by, but I kind of I grasping this core de definition of liberalism as a as, – it's just it, – it's a negation or it's, it's an absence. It's the creation of absence, like you were saying, with secular and religious. It's creating this – vacuum where things can react impartially or something like that. But it's, it's pretending that itself is not a totalizing structure that's creating that vacuum. Right. Right. It's saying yeah. we, we have a vacuum, but I'm enforcing this vacuum. It's really hard to, to, I get, I get little bits of it. Um, when, you want to, you want a simplified version? I could probably do a simplified version. Does it rhyme? I should. Dang. Yeah, we can work on that after. I think that at the end of the day, you can describe liberalism without much highfalutin language because people are sinful and they're greedy and they want money and they want power and they want land and they want all sorts. And historically, the church has been an object of frustration to sin because it says, well, actually, usury is a sin. We condemn you 
for your usury. We condemn you for your greed. We condemn you for your violence. Da, da, da. So it's a big stumbling block. It's an obstacle. If you happen to be someone that wants to just fulfill the desire for individual gain and not has no concern for the common good. So there's a lot of ways to fight the church, right? So you can create a new church. You can say, screw you, you're wrong. Greed is good. I'm going to have a church of greedy people. And you can try to fight the church, um, which there's been a few heretical sects throughout history that have essentially done that, right? That, um, it doesn't usually end well, but <laughs> there's been there's been some efforts. The genius of liberalism is to not go that route. It's to not say, okay, we're another church that has the real truth. It's to simply um, attempt to relativize the church, to say, we're going to tell you something about the church that the church doesn't know about itself. And that is that you are one option among many. It's like, okay, I hear your moral law. I hear your, you telling me every time I try to take someone's land, you say, don't be greedy. And if you're in the middle ages, you actually enforce that. Like <laughs> you, know, you can throw me in jail or something. Um, okay. I hear all that, but what I'm going to posit is you as impotent. So you are in fact, despite what you say about yourself, church, always telling me what to do. You are in fact a set of beliefs that I may or may not in freedom adhere to. Maybe I'm wrong and not adhering to them. You know, this is the genius, right? Because you don't even necessarily say that you're not adhering to them. You just say, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong not to adhere to them. But the point is, I don't. And so you cannot enforce your law. You cannot enforce your teaching. You cannot be a real social presence in the world as saying the world should be shaped this way versus that because you have become something different. I've effectively transformed you in my mind. This, I think, is actually the real story of liberalism is that very greedy people um, in England, but in other places in Europe around the time of the Reformation wanted to do things that the church said they couldn't. And so instead of doing the thing that... Uh, the Anglicans did, which is like, well, screw you. Our king's the Pope now, and we've got a new church, and it's called the Church of England. Um, instead of doing that, they developed a essentially Protestant vision in which they just told a different story about the church itself. Yeah, well, of, of man and God. Yeah, and the world. everything. And everything changes. Everything becomes, well, no, actually, I am going to take this land from this peasant, and have it for myself because I am an individual who can see the morality offered by the church as an option that I may or may not participate in. And I choose not to. Now that's basically the story. And, and the story of modernity is one in which we're in constant denial of this. And we, then we end up going so far as to say things like you can't enforce morality, right? You, know, you hear that sometimes, which is not much blatant. anymore. <laughs> Well, well, I know people we were saying to... that <laughs> you can't uh, legislate morality or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's that's my sort of um, my storybook take on liberalism. It's like bad people want to do bad things. Church says no. Bad people say the church isn't really the church. Okay, I'm not an economist or a historian at all, but there's still a tremendous amount of potential that was unlocked in the capitalist reformation and the no longer having the church controlling economic and technology and you know the the church yeah. is slow, right? And there totally. are there's there's a domain where morality works and where it's actually stopping human development. 
stopping our relationship with the material world to to devise all these wonderful things. Well, and I'm sure, and, and I'm not yeah. saying that Catholics are anti-science because I know that you your tradition has tons of science and even birthed and carried science um, through uh, m- multiple generations. But still, the unfettered innovation and commerce and all that stuff yeah maybe there's a lot of greed to say it was only greed and it only resulted in greed is to ignore the massive amount of goods that have happened to humanity and maybe we're just burning the candle now because we've been unleashed you know it's to be content yeah no i i 100 percent would never deny that the birth of liberalism the rise of capitalism everything we call secularism has unlocked a relation between man and the material world that has enabled him to have way more wealth and technology. And in some ways, I think that was the whole point is that we wanted more wealth and more control that comes from man. My two questions would be this one, is that a good thing? And two, um, did it happen through a spreading and burgeoning of happiness like where we like you can talk about an increase in material civilization but obviously it's kind of meaningless if you had an increase in material civilization in which everyone was miserable you know what i mean it's like if you judge the world on the basis of the spread of its machines then you're really valuing machines over the people that operate them so this is an obvious critique of anyone that romanticizes like industrialism right like on the one hand you can say let's look at the history of humanity as a development on the basis of the kinds of machines they build coming up to now. And you'd say, wow, progress. This is just improvement. Mm-hmm. Incredible. We're mm-hmm. doing great. Um, but obviously if you were to do a research into the kinds of um, violence that people experienced as man increasingly in the Western world owns less and less works more and more and wealth is increasingly concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer then you have a, a different story of the rise of technology. So between those two questions, I think, um, I, I do think there's a radical questioning here where if the presumption is that, um, yeah, just an increase in wealth and technology is a self-justifying principle, then um, I think we're just going to disagree. You know, I do think that liberalism unlocked that in many ways um and so and i also think that you know many genuine goods have come out of that um but for a good to come out of an evil doesn't make the evil good well i I don't i don't know if it was all evil though maybe it was grace you know maybe it was a gift that god gave man to uh develop uh into all this science and technology and maybe it had to come about in a certain way and maybe you know every gift god gives like some people use it to cut a cut a coconut you know if it's a knife yeah, and sure. some <laughs> use it to cut somebody else's throat but I, I i hear your point about the you know if all of a sudden there's eight billion people on the world in in the world if 40 billion of them are absolutely oppressed and miserable. Is that a net good? Like what's the quality of life and is our relationship to the material reality having changed? Does that answer everything? And, and does that not obscure ourselves to uh, another reality? And did, did we sacrifice that? And can we reawaken that 
within this now completely populated and controlled environment. Yeah, um, yeah. And I noticed it's a hard question to ask because people judge happiness and fulfillment based on the world that they're given, right? So in a world where the best you can hope for is to get a good job and then purchase commodities that you consume, you might say I'm happy and and be relatively convinced outside for of some like suppressed yearning for something more because you are winning at your world. I am consuming the most commodities, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, I know I, I, I do see the, the difficulty. I think that there is a little bit of a bind here though, that if we judge a social order, then we have to have an end by which we're judging it. So how do you know that something is good? I mean, Jesus says this, right? By the, by your fruits, you shall know them. So what you posit as the proper fruit of the thing is going to be, is going to determine what, what things you value within the society as attaining that, that very same fruit. So, okay. Within Christian societies, what was valued and what ought to be valued is the virtue of the people in them. So that's a fruit, uh, the happiness of the people in them the sanctity of the people in them. Well, um, can you define sanctity in this instance? Um, getting right with God? No. <laughs> sanctity is, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know that I actually have a, an awesome definition. It's, it is um, the It's not just somebody's identifying you as sacred. It's that ha- some sort of clean uh, openness, uh, connectivity. Uh, I think you said Christ-likeness um, in reference to your father. And I think that, just about hits it, you know, the degree to which you are radiantly an image of God as you were supposed to be. You might speak poetically of it and say something like it's, it's the person fully alive or the person living as he was created to live or something like that. But yeah, it's a purity, not in the sense of like cleanliness, but in the sense of a transparency to your own ideal. So like I am who I meant to be would be a statement that that if someone could make that of themselves, you would say, I'm in the presence of something holy here, hmm. holy from whole holistic um, health even comes from the same root. Hmm. So someone who is self-evidently holy is transparently themselves as opposed to struggling to become themselves or, or failing to forcing be. you to agree to see yeah. them as they want to be seen. Or, or yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a good bit of that. Um, okay. So those are the fruits that are aimed at within a society. Well, if the fruits are changed and what we aim at is money, then we will have a different number of things that are valued, right? Or if the fruit is the domination of the material world over and against conditions of scarcity, then we are going to value another set of things, right? So you can imagine, for instance, in a world whose predominant desire was the extension of biological life. And so whose predominant fear was biological death, that you would enter into an essential in a world in which medical advancement was the dominant value and all happiness and success within that society would be judged according to its end. So even if within, um, this is an extreme case, right? But even if the way to successfully extend biological life was to put everyone into a hospital bed at the age of 30 and keep them there till 120 and then euthanize them. Uh, this from the standpoint of what the, what the desired fruit is, what's perceived as the goal would be success. And we would point to it and say, look how we have improved. 
And so I'm not reducing what you're saying to that because this is just an extreme point for, for clarity. But when we say something like, well, look at all of our ability to dominate the material world or look at our ability to create wealth, we're positing a definite end to the human person. Like this is who the human person ought to be, namely wealthy and able to dominate the material world. Um, so then there's only two questions left. Is that in fact true? And is it all that the human person is is for? So sometimes, or, or it does seem to me that the questioning liberalism means questioning what fruits are posited as um, the goal or the end of the human person of the society. Um, and I'm just getting incre- <laughs> getting increasingly cynical on the idea that it's um, hmm. that it's wealth because wealth doesn't seem to have um, quite I mean, the correlation with happiness that we would like. Yeah, well. It, for Gen Z, for the young kids, it's it's identity. It's this identity that's the sure. I think that's right. Yeah, the plane um, more than wealth. I mean, they can they need enough wealth to look wealthy. Um, we'll see as they age. I, I think the greed kicks in a little later if we can uh, watch the baby baby boomers go from the '60s through their uh, charismatic '70s and then to their greedy '80s. Then I'm sure that Gen Z will do that too. Um, but yeah, again, right. you know, in and of itself, is that that's the fruit like activism being a fruit and even activism itself. I bring that up, but you have all these different activisms and they're all competing with each other. So there's not a unified activism other than I guess emancipation from hardship ends up being the goal. So then it becomes ridiculous where people start complaining about these things called microaggressions. They're building all these homeless encampments, trying to give the homeless housing, but not, but the, it turns out that the, these people are still dying there. They're still moving mm-hmm. on. You know, they're, they're not really fixing the problem. There's not an end goal. And um, so the project such as yours of enunciating the problems of liberalism and then showing what Catholicism offers and gives society and then even, you know, arguing, depending on um, who's listening persuasively or not, that it's all, we're always already Catholic. Is, oh, which yes. I, you're kind of saying, you're, you're, and and I, I see that a lot, like in in the ex-Muslim community, like they're basically mm-hmm. just kind of Christian now. You know, they're just like this agnostic secular Christian, which is kind of they've just kind of grown up in a different society and stuff. Yeah. And pointing to that, and then um, enunciating that includes the good, includes feeding the poor, and and helping the gender dysphoric, and helping the the kids that are autistic and all that stuff, but it lifts yeah. all these individual intersecting oppressions into a higher unified goal that you humbly and proudly state as one thing as God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, th- thank you for, for summarizing. Um, I didn't mean to, you know, Christ, Christ said, um, I mansplained, I guess. There. What's that? Mansplained. Yeah. Mansplained. <laughs> It's the only way you can explain. It's mansplain. Oh, Sorry, dude. Do <laughs> yeah, Christ said um, that when he is lifted on the cross, he would gather all things to himself. And it's kind of an esoteric line from him, <laughs> if I can call it a line. Um, and something of something of that um, something of that all is really carried on in the church that that all things have their relation to Christ, even if it's a negative relation, even if it's running a different direction. Um, the church is positing that there really is a story of salvation, a goal 
of heaven, the person of Christ who saves all and the create, and you know, you know, I don't need to harp on it. It's just, it's just that when you have a total story, you can understand where people are within it. Um, now the, the, does, I'm not saying that this doesn't require belief. Sometimes when people hear people talking in this way, they can think that, well, you don't actually have to like subjectively participate in it. And that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, but the belief is in a universal story, right? It's not like a belief for me. Um, and that's what makes Catholicism so difficult hmm. within liberalism is at the end of the day, no matter how much we would like it, the Catholic is never saying, Hey, I have this thing that's worked out really well for me. And I think it could really work out well for you too, but always does end up in this very bullyish position of saying, Hey, here's something that you're neglecting. And I think it would make you happy to stop, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is hardly a, a good, good line at parties. Um, gotta no, say. <laughs> not in liberal society. <laughs> no, but I think we're getting more, more in, in some paradoxical ways, more open to extremes. And so I think more open to the church. Hmm. Um, maybe this is the one value of the loss of any vision of something besides power. Right. So if you have this postmodern turn where it's all relative, it's all constructs. One of the consequences is that the person is really thrown on his resources to sort of pick a construct. And this is an abysmal way to become Christian. I don't recommend it. However, <laughs> we are in the abyss. So abysmal things might be uh, hmm. expected, which is to say, okay, if everyone is pushing a totalizing narrative and there's no alternative, I can't like retreat to liberalism and say, I'm the one who doesn't have a totalizing narrative. Like if that option's gone. Well, isn't that what you were critiquing the right about? How so? Sorry. Uh, earlier you said that the right is descending into grievance. Uh, pandering yeah no i think right? it is no and I, this is why i say it's an abysmal way to look at the church because mm. it's just that i've so i've met a lot of people that have converted to catholicism recently to own to own the libs and <laughs> no, i'm not kidding i wish i was joking man uh, huh. and you know my hope for them is that the grace in the sacraments will help them to be Catholic for other reasons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do think it is this paradox that liberalism has sort of liberal societies have backed themselves into. It's like they told us two things that they promised they don't have any totalizing vision for our lives and that we should be rebels. And what that did is it basically unmoored us all from any definite tradition of life, any definite way. Um, and then had us looking around for someone to rebel against. Now this is the greatest risk possible because obviously some people are going to find liberalism itself as the object of their rebellion and the fulfillment of liberalism's own command to rebel. Mm -hmm. And then you have exactly what I just said, which is a rebellion into the church. So it's like, I'm going to be the least liberal thing I can oh. imagine Catholic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but of course, once you arrive, it's, it's different because it's not, there's no such thing as a negation, like a, 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 a Catholicism that's a negation just makes no sense. It's like, you might have bust down the door and come into the church because you wanted to show your dad that you didn't care what he thought and you're a rebel. But once you get in the church, you're going to meet Jesus and he's got nothing to do with all that. <laughs> so that's my hope um, is that 
liberalism overplays its hand and that um, rebellion ultimately leads to the church. Well, it's, um, it's certainly found lacking and leading to some pretty disturbing um, outcomes on every level of society at this point. Yeah. So, Mark, what do you do? Plug your work. How do, can people connect with you? What, what are your, what's your project? Yeah. The new polity. Well, I mean, you heard a little bit about it. Um, we're all just, just, uh, theocratic nut, nut cases over here. <laughs> they're uh, little theocratic little nuts too. Um, we just rest in the assurance that you're all theocratic too. You just don't know it. Uh, <laughs> so what I do is I publish a, a journal called new polity. Um, or I edit a journal, I should say. Mm. And, um, and it can be found at newpolity.com where we write about all sorts of things. Um, if you want to sum us up, we are um, anti-capitalistic, usually conservative Catholics who have a penchant for talking about money, sex, and power, <laughs> um, where we think sex is a originally created resistance to tyranny. And so any kind of blurring of sexual difference is just... Um, a way to homogenize a human person so he's more easily made into a slave. We think power is largely misunderstood that in fact, every instance of human um, uh, action involves power differences and that the work of justice and peace is ordering those power differences towards the common good so that all power is used in the service of the weak uh, and no power is used for the sake of private gain. And then money um, we think is a one of the trickier tools of tyrants. And we think that there are virtues or habits or ways of being and ways of using money that create kinds of people that we should long to be. And that there are ways of using money that create kinds of people that we should be ashamed to be. And on the side of ad admiration, we have the magnificent, the liberal, ironically, the old meaning of the word liberal, the, um, uh, the generous and the almsgiving man. And on the side of uh, of things we don't want to be, we have the greedy user, the, the vicious man. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so these are sort of our, our you might call them our hangups, but it's it's what we're about. And um, and our hope is to not merely talk about it, um, but we're also working to actively build up a alternative society where we live. Um, in uh, Steubenville, Ohio, which is the land of much rust and plenty. Um, and so we are doing all sorts of things here, um, building a make shop, building a brewery, trying to revitalize our downtown, um, working with uh, sustainable farmers who are sort of kicking the industrial farm system in some way, and otherwise trying to have festival and a communal life that... Um, affirms and admires each other and gives each other that sense of identity, which I think so many people long for today. So that's sort of what we do. Um, yeah. Unless, unless you got any other questions. Well, I you think got a YouTube channel too. And a that's podcast right. Of course. Too? So we do podcasts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the middle, you mentioned this, we're in the middle of a, of a podcast on gender. Um, Wait, there's going to be like 20 episodes total. Jeez. Louise. 
Yeah, we're going to take a break soon and then we'll come back to it. So I think it'll be like an episode season situation because yeah. it turns out that it's... Uh, I've been I've been riding the gender train back. for about three years, man. There's a lot of content in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I really appreciate a lot of the conversations that you've had. Um, yeah, so right now we're reading a book called Gender by Ivan Illich, um, mm. which is a phenomenal book. When Often forgotten, but... When did he write that? Hmm, 80s. Oh, wow, okay. I think it was, I think it was like 83, but I could be wrong. Interesting. Might have been, mm, that sounds right. Um, yeah, anyway, so so we read books together with, yeah. with people that want to listen. We went through Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, um, but then we also go through just our own sort of attempt to synthesize uh, and critique uh, the queer theory tradition um, with the Catholic tradition and, and hopefully fruitful, yeah. fruitful claims come out of that. I, I, I would love to have another conversation with you specifically about that, because that's the one thing I'm, I'm waiting for you guys to actually define man and woman. Like, it doesn't seem like you get, you guys haven't gotten there yet. You're setting up. I'm like, I, I want to know, tell me, tell me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. So, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm expecting that. And then I'm, Hopefully, I can. Oh, it's gonna be awesome. We should have like fireworks when we do. Oh, yeah. Know? A big gender reveal yes. party. Like, get some balloons and. <laughs> They're gonna reveal gender. <laughs> yeah. You know, I do like, I have to say, I'm becoming more and more fond of the Aristotelian definition, which is that the male is the one who bears life outside of himself, and the woman is the one who bears life within herself. Or the female is the one that bears life within herself. I don't think it's sufficient, but I do think it's a much more beautiful and interesting beginning than a lot of the other, um, because I don't think it's just like a biological reduction to say that, like to say, I am the one who bears life outside of itself is not to say something like wrote about like, uh, yeah, you're gonads. the, uh, you're the ejaculator. And, yeah. And she's uh, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't quite have person. that ring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, I like that, but, but yeah, that should be coming up. Um, yeah. I don't think that that particular conversation can avoid becoming mythological. I think ultimately the resolution right. of gender is, is in mythology. That's my contention. It's always been my contention. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I, it must be, right? Because we, anytime someone just goes and tells you what it is, you just are like, yes, and? You know what I mean? Like, it's not even that, like, even, I'm getting more sympathetic for the queer theorists where they're like, you know, it's just this big social construct of the power thing that you do. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And cause yeah. it can't just be that, you know, like what is being constructed? <laughs> um, and I feel a similar way about like just purely biological arguments. It's like, it's just what science says it is. Yeah. It's, you know, you're making gametes female gametes. It's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. you know, <laughs> because it doesn't seem to be what we're writing poems about and what we're, yeah. what we're all losing our minds over right now either. <laughs> yeah. no. hey, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be fighting over it so much and investing so much in it if it didn't have a absolute ground level reality to yeah, our life. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, and you know, there's all these different. Again, three years, I have more to go. Uh, so sure. I, I would love to have you and your uh, what's her name? Maria Brandel. Maria Brandel. Is she an author as well? You guys are doing great. I just want to plug that. That anybody interested in yeah. the gender uh, conversation, you guys are doing phenomenal work. Uh, going through the queer theory and then I, I feel that you guys are going to move into positive t territory and it's really difficult oh, yeah. to get to the positive territory. Um, yeah. Because again, just like Catholicism, it's like, well, no, we believe something. It's something you actually have to believe and participate in. It's not something. Yeah. That, it's just your body or. You know, yeah. And I'm sure, found, you. I'm sure you found this, right? That it's always easier and flows better to, to say what's not true. 
and what seems to you to be ridiculous. And then it's when someone says, okay, well, what do you think? That suddenly it's like, uh. <laughs> you guys, you were very wise to have a man and a woman talking about this because you actually have yeah, to model yeah. gender. You actually have to have a man talking to a woman to, yeah. to actually see what, what what's going on there. And you can't even really yeah. see it. You just kind of. Totally. Yeah. No, we struggled over that, you know, just finding someone that, you know, one of the awesome things about Maria is that she wants to be a nun. So like she goes off Mm. to look at monasteries and decide, you know, Mm. what group of women she wants to spend her life as a consecrated virgin with, um, Mm. which is of course totally unfathomable to most of our cultural imagination right now. But it does mean that, it's like I get to talk with someone that is so certain about femininity that she's quite willing to give up the male side of things entirely for the rest of her life until she dies. <laughs> I'm like, of course that's not, it's not like an isolationist thing. It's just, um, it shows a certain confidence that, that I think is marvelous, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, you know, Illich who we're reading talks about it as the synchronicity of the left and the right hand engaged in tasks of like pouring a cup of coffee and drinking or something like that. It's not a subordination of one over the other. There's a weakness and a strength there, but they're in a concert and you couldn't take just the right hand and describe it as a reality that would make any sense if you weren't also describing the left hand. So he talks about, he calls it a ambiguous asymmetry Hmm. uh, as defining the relations between the sexes. And so I, I think precisely because of that it's very silly to try and find some kind of objective scientific view where you can say exactly in a totalizing way what the two are Mm -hmm. because you might say that but then the relationship is construed differently from women construe the relationship of male Mm -hmm. and female differently than men construe the relationship of male and female so what you really have is a meeting of worlds that don't quite overlap uh, one might even call it a marriage, <laughs> not a, um, not a bringing up antiqui- antiquated concepts. Just <laughs> yeah, but you're right. We should talk about that. Um, we should, we should, uh, if you'd be, if you, if you'd, um, oh, I got a lot out of willing, this. we should talk about that some other time. We should, we should wrap up though. Uh, so the people sure. who are listening can finish their dishes and go on with their lives and I can go to work. Get it. You thank you for letting us be your background noise for a little while. Yeah. Appreciate thank it. Thanks for one for joining and thank you, Mark. Thanks Benjamin. Thanks for having me. I'm just going to stop the recording.